And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, as you may have heard, there was a momentous event that happened recently back at the end of April. It was the 50th anniversary of It's a Small World, and it was no small event, as it's really amazing that it went 50 years of having It's a Small World around. And so on today's podcast, I'd like to present to you some of the history and backstory of It's a Small World and sort of where we are today. So before we get to that, let's take a moment and hear something from our sponsor. Hey, I have the best-kept Disney World and Universal Studios vacation secret. Did you know that anyone can rent a sweet ride and truly get around fast with your pass inside the theme parks? Mom, tell them. Well, Scooter Vacations makes it fun all day long. You or someone you love deserves the best way to see everything. So why not relax and enjoy a true express ride with your pass? Scooter Vacations can arrange it and even deliver it to you. Get around the fun way, have as much fun getting from ride to ride as being on the ride. They fit on buses, boats, and monorails, and some can fit in a car trunk. Upgrade your experience and scoot everywhere. Contact Scooter Vacations at 1-855-WDW-SCOOT. That's 1-855-WDW-SCOOT. Or on the web at scootorlando.com. That's S-C-O-O-T Orlando.com. S-C-O-O-T Orlando.com. All right, so returning to the story of It's a Small World. Now, as I've told you in the past, the 1964 World's Fair that happened in New York was really a momentous, uh, maybe a, uh, a hallmark, a watershed moment in the uh, history of the Walt Disney Company. There's really something uh, interesting about that and the way it all came together. Disney had several things that they were working on for the World's Fair, including the uh, Ford's Magic Skyway, the Carousel of Progress, and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Not to mention the fact that they were working on a new 360-degree uh, movie uh, that they were going to put into Disneyland, plus, of course, the upkeep of Disneyland that was now uh, nine years old. So there was a lot going on in the Walt Disney Company, and it's an amazing thing that they were able to do all of this. Now, I'll have to do a whole podcast about the World's Fair and sort of its impetus and everything that it had to do with, uh, with the Disney Company, but... One of the interesting things was that Disney was always looking at ways to improve on its ride shows and attractions, and the World's Fair provided them an opportunity to really showcase some of the technologies and try out some new things. Disney had all the smarts. They had the Imagineers, they had the show designers, the set designers, and all those people, and the creative talent, but what they didn't have was extremely deep pockets. They were able to do a lot with the money that they had. But by having these corporate corporations actually providing the money so that they could build something, it really did allow them to try out some new technologies. So there were some remarkable things that happened and a lot of, you might say, synergy between the uh, Walt Disney Company and these corporations that were uh, developing up these new, uh, that were paying for these new attractions that Disney was developing. 
So the story goes, Disney was working on those three um, major attractions at the World's Fair. And it was uh, February of 1963, so you're a little over a year away from the uh, opening of the World's Fair. And the Pepsi-Cola company had an agreement with UNICEF, the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund. And they were going to produce a, an, a pavilion for the World's Fair that was really going to showcase children around the world. Well, Pepsi had been working on this for some period of time, and they couldn't come up with anything that they really loved. They had several different ideas they batted around. Nothing really worked. You know, everything kind of fell apart along the way. It was like, well, maybe this, maybe that. And it, it sort of became a lower priority for Pepsi. Now here it was just a little bit over a year away, and they were trying to decide what they were going to do. So the story goes that uh, Joan Crawford, who was on the board of directors for UNICEF, uh, Joan Crawford, the actress, actually went and suggested the Pepsi company go to Walt Disney. And the reason for this was she had heard that they were making three attractions for uh, the World's Fair. And she thought it would be great if Disney got involved because they could really take it to a new level, especially since the idea of the Disneyland was for children of all ages. That was kind of the idea. So she thought maybe it would be a really great opportunity for Pepsi to team up with Disney and do something really spectacular. So several of the uh, Disney executives met with several of the Pepsi executives. Pepsi came to California, and one of the lead people in there was uh, Joe Fowler. Now, you've heard me talk about Joe Fowler, Admiral Joe. Um, he was can-do Joe. He could pretty much do anything. He was the guy who designed a lot of Disneyland and also a Disney World in the future, and he had that can-do attitude. He believed he could do anything. So he was working on this, uh, this idea that he could do it, and Pepsi pitched him the idea, and they said, you know, we'd like you to come in and help us to design something. And he thought about it for a while against all the other things that he had going on, and he realized it just wasn't going to work. There was no way that in the amount of time they had, they could actually put it together. So he said, sorry, I, I can't do it, and he turned them away. So they left, and they were kind of disappointed, and they were trying to figure out what they were going to do. And Walt Disney himself heard about this so a week or so later and came back to, uh, to Joe and said, no, we never turn anybody away. We don't say no. You know, the story goes he was actually kind of livid about it. He was actually upset that he wanted, uh, he wanted to actually take it on. So he actually went back to them and said, of course we can do it. And they, um, they went back to the, to the Pepsi company and said, we'll do it. Um, we would, uh, we'd like to do a planning, design, and feasibility study for the pavilion. So here it was. Now it's, fe it's late February. So you're, you know, you're just over a year away, and they're, they're just starting the design phase. So... Disney came up with a couple of things that he wanted to do. First of all, he thought, if we're going to talk about children around the world, then it should be this, um, this idea of uh, the children of the world. So he, that was the working name of the attraction. And he thought maybe he'd have children, representatives of children of the world, maybe not children themselves, but some representation of children that kind of spoke to people going along. Now, one of the other interesting things that was kind of happening here, I mentioned earlier that Disney was always looking for ways to innovate and do new show designs and do some different things that they hadn't done before. So when they were planning up something called the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Pirates of the Caribbean was originally going to be a wax museum that people could walk through. The, and it would tell the stories of different pirates and adventures and pirate adventures and things like that. Several of the Imagineers didn't like the idea of it being a walkthrough attraction. They preferred it to be some sort of a boat attraction where you would be sailing through and looking at the pirates in these different uh, vignettes. And a couple of key things about that. One, it's a people eater when you do something like that. People get on the boat, they're always moving, and you have a constant flow of traffic. It's not waiting in a queue and then getting caught up in some congestion because something is more interesting and people stop. 
This would continue having people move along so they could get to the point of actually seeing the whole story. And Disney himself liked the idea, Walt Disney liked the idea, and wasn't sure how he was going to implement it. Now, Bob Gurr had already come up with the design idea for the, uh, for the floats, for the, for the boats that were going to go along in the attraction. And so here was a great opportunity to kind of ride test it, to build something that was similar in this small world attraction where it was a water-based ride and you were traveling around the world to see all the children. Um, so it really kind of worked in. It would work in as children of all ages showcasing the wonderland where the, all the world's children live and play. So that was kind of the idea. He really had a very clever thing he was doing and kind of thought it through. So now he knew he wanted to do children of the world. He wanted to do something, uh, a boat-themed ride. And uh, they came up with a kind of a design for it. Um, They started doing some prototypes and mock-ups and some of their 3D dioramas that Disney was known for. And they were going to pitch the idea to Pepsi. Now, several of the key Imagineers the legends of the Disney company were involved in this. And actually, pretty much, by the time it ended, pretty much every one of the Disney Imagineers was involved in this attraction, which is one of the remarkable things for the short amount of time they had, how many people were involved in some of the things they did. So it's really incredible how many people touched this particular attraction. So the other thing Disney wanted was uh, some sort of a catchy song, something that people would remember. They'd walk away from it and they'd go, oh, this is kind of cool and it's kind of a neat idea. So he went to the Sherman Brothers, and he asked them uh, to uh, propose a, a couple of songs for him, and he'd pick one that he would, could use for the attraction. They had a short amount of time to come up with something, given the timelines again, and they started thinking about different ideas they could come up with. They started with having children singing their, like their theme songs, or not their theme songs, the, the national anthems for their countries, and uh, bringing that together and having uh, some sort of synergy from that, kind of rotating from one uh, grouping to the next people singing in their own languages, and it, none of them kind of worked. So he came up with sort of a ballad. And the ballad was that it's a small world after all. We're at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, you know, there's a lot of um, uneasiness in the world. And, you know, he, uh, the Sherman brothers really wanted to present the fact and promote the fact that the world is the way it is, and it could be so much more, and you should be promoting peace and prosperity. And so they came up with this ballad, but they kind of... Um, took it down to a, a, a slower tempo, so it was sort of a, it's a small world after all, but in a, in a sort of a melancholy fashion. And it sounded a little something like this. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time
But then they realized that it needed to have a little bit more up-tempo emotion to it. And after they played it for Walt the first time, he goes, no, no, it needs to be a little bit more up-tempo. So they came up with something a little bit faster that was a little bit happier. And that's where they came up with the song that you hear and know today, It's a Small World After All. And that song was the immediate one that caught Walt's attention. And he said, yep, that's the one. Didn't want to hear the other songs. That was it. So they had a song to go along with it. And once they heard the name of the song, It's a Small World After All, the name of the attraction changed as well to kind of fit in with that. So it became It's a Small World. And that was really kind of neat that uh, it all kind of fit together in some way. And they came up with this idea for an attraction that really was different and something else. So they went to uh, Pepsi um, a couple of months later. So now we're, you know, nine-ish months away from the opening of the uh, World's Fair. So it's, you know, like uh, middle of the summer. And they go to New York and Disney pitches the idea. They've got all their, their proposals ready. They've got their diagrams, their dioramas, their pictures, whatever else they can put together. And they play a little bit of the song. And legend has it that one of the executives for Pepsi said, what is this Mickey Mouse thing that's going on here? This is ridiculous. I don't want this. I want something that's, that's really different. And Joan Crawford, again, being on the board of UNICEF, actually prevailed upon him. Hey, give it a try. You know, this is about the children. This should be something that's like this, that's fun and interactive and different and interesting. So um, they decided to go with it. Now, the story goes that uh, after it opened, the, the Pepsi-Cola people hated it. They just hated it. They always hated it. They don't like it to this day. The people that were involved with it still don't like it. But I guess that would be the, the case um, if it was something they really didn't want. So uh, Disney got the green light to go ahead and build it. The Disney Imagineers spent the better parts of nine months building the attraction. And it was an absolute masterpiece. And the fact that they got it done in that short an amount of time was really remarkable. They were able to put together everything in that time. Now, as I said... Every Imagineer, every show designer, everyone who you think of as a Disney legend played some part in this. Now you had Bob Gurren, Raleigh Crump, and uh, Claude Coates, and uh, Mark Davis, and Alice Davis, and uh, Mary Blair, and you name it. The per- somebody was involved in this. It had a little bit of everybody's touches in it, working through this whole attraction. And what they decided on was to, to uh, make a series of dolls that represented the children of the world. So every doll in the attraction is the same as every other doll in the attraction. They've got the same shaped face. They've got the same thing. What's different about them is the set that they're on and the clothes that they're wearing. And this was actually a Mary Blair thing. Mary was the key person in designing the overall feel and theme of the show to make it look like you're on different uh, continents to look at these children, and they're all singing to you. So they sing in their language to some degree, and they they dance a little bit, not a whole lot, but they're just these uh, these sort of marionette things, these uh, static uh, figures that are just standing there that are shaped a little bit differently with the clothing they're wearing, and they, they continue to, uh, to sing to you throughout the attraction. Now, the dolls themselves internally were known as rubber heads. Then that's based on the uh, notation that appeared on a Mark Davis drawing. Uh, Davis was supplying gags for the scenes and the flow of the action of the figures, including the dancing. Now, remember that Mark Davis has this wonderful wit about him. If you look at a lot of the attractions he's designed, there's some really cool, interactive, fun little gags that are built into the attractions. And you really have to pay attention. And if you do, you catch the subtle humor. It's all very subtle. So he had a lot to do with that, and the dolls themselves were sculpted by Blaine Gibson, and then Alice uh, Davison uh, did the costuming on them. So at the end, they had about 250 different things that were not the dolls that they added to the sets uh, that really made the, made the whole thing work. And it really kind of captured the imagination to a large degree. And the boat part of it was genius because it really was the people eater. This was one of the most popular attractions at the World's Fair. 
And the uh, the price that they charged for people to ride it was a dollar for for adults and sixty cents for children, and uh, most of the money went to UNICEF, uh, so they were actually uh, making money. And the number of people that flowed through that uh, attraction just blew everyone away. While there were lines at every other thing, like the Ford Motor Skyway, there was always a line waiting to go on it. At the uh, Small World attraction, you could just almost jump right on because the, they were they were people eating. The, the boats were just picking people up and moving right on through, and it was always moving. And it just really is something remarkable that they were able to do that. Now, the, uh, the final design uh, came up with some uh, kind of some clever things and, you know, the, the way the show plays out. But one thing that Disney did that hadn't been done before was to put a, uh, a gift shop at the end of the ride. So you get off the attraction and you're entering the UNICEF gift shop. It was a great way for you to kind of make a contribution and get something that was related to UNICEF to help children of the world out. And what he found was something surprising people actually lingered in the gift shop. And that became the genesis for an idea for him that he would put a gift shop at the end of every attraction, or most anyway, that you see in the uh, Disney parks around the world today. So thanks again to the uh, World's Fair for coming up with that idea, kind of by accident. It's a happy coincidence, but it, it really did work out that way. It's, it really is remarkable that, uh, that it kind of came together and you know everything kind of worked out. When the attraction opened, they put in uh, a number of Disney characters standing outside the attraction to introduce it and get guests to come in. Now, Raleigh Crump had a lot to do with this, and Raleigh Crump came up with some of the clever things you see, like the innovative person who's riding a bicycle on a high wire and that sort of thing, where he came up with some clever ideas and was creative with it. He also came up with something else called the uh, Tower of the Four Winds that was installed in the front of the pavilion. It was 120 feet tall. And the reason for it was because uh, when Walt looked at the pavilion when it was nearing completion, he said, you know, it's kind of plain and uninspired. It needs something to draw people in. So the, uh, the Tower of the Four Winds had 52 different mobiles that, represent that represented the constant energy of the young. And it was an amazing thing that he was able to do. So it was this amazing eye-catching landmark um, that really uh, was the centerpiece. And people knew where it was. They'd say, meet by the Tower of the Four Winds. There was a pavilion around it, and there was a park, a little open area like a park around it that people could go to. And that made it just remarkable that it became the iconic piece that went there. Now, when the uh, World's Fair closed... Disney looked at moving it potentially to uh, Disneyland, but with the cost associated with it, it was going to cost, you know, at the, in those days, dollars around $80,000 because it was made of iron to move it to uh, Disneyland all the way across country. And that was just too expensive. So Disney actually cut it up and used it as scrap instead. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? So it's amazing that they were able to do it. Um, so as you flow through the attraction, Think about uh, kind of coming through and visiting different parts of the world. So you start with the title room, you're starting off, and you're saying, you're saying hello. And then you go into the Af- Arctic North Pole that features dolls from Scandinavia and Canada. Then you go to the Europe area where it has uh, English dolls, French dolls, Italians, and then some, uh, some people from Switzerland. And then it moves to Asia, which represents uh, Thailand, India, Korea, um, and then uh, China and Japan. And then there's an Africa section. Then you move into a Latin America section um, that includes Brazil and Mexico. Then you move into the South Seas where you're uh, looking at Polynesia and uh, and the areas like Hawaii. Uh, Then you move into North America uh, where the dolls represent the U.S. Um, And then it's the finale room where there's a carnival or a festival that represents all the cultures of the the world dressed in white versions of their native native costumes and singing in English. Because throughout the attraction, each of them was singing in their own languages until you got to that final room. Then everyone was speaking in English. Really kind of a clever idea. Um, And then the say goodbye room was uh, these brightly painted postcards that said goodbye. So you said hello, visited all the children of the world, and then said goodbye. And 
it really was remarkable that they were able to do that and uh, put it together in that amount of time. Now, Disney itself, um, the Imagineers all said, it was a tremendous amount of coffee and two martini lunches that kept us going. I guess that was the relaxing part of it. Um, They were working all nights, weekends, and pretty much every moment that they had spare uh, to be able to complete this attraction on time uh, to be able to open on opening day. And the tribute to them is the fact that this attraction lasted 50 years. So after it closed at um, the World's Fair, so it was open for two seasons of the World's Fair, basically two summers, uh, 1964, and then again in 1965, it was open and it uh, it attracted a number a large number of guests. And in fact, as I said, it took took in more guests than all of the other attractions that Disney had, and probably I, I think arguably most of the attractions at the uh, World's Fair overall. It just was able to consume people and bring them in, and it was a remarkable thing. So once the World Fair finally closed down, they decided that they wanted to open a uh, an attraction at Disneyland that was the uh, the same attraction and called it It's a Small World. So they boxed up most of the equipment, rides, uh, vehicles, boats, everything, and shipped it over to Disneyland. Not everything. Some of it was recreated in Disneyland to make it, uh, make it complete. They reshaped the building a little bit to make it just a little bit more expansive than it was at, uh, at the World's Fair. But it really was the same attraction, and it opened in 1966 in, uh, in Disneyland. And it had most of the same showpieces and a lot of the things that were there. There were 300 dolls and 250 toys and 30 other sets and things like that that were all included in it. And they were able to open it up and put it in and, and make it that way. Then when they uh, conceived the idea for Walt Disney World, one of the first things Walt wanted to do was to recreate It's a Small World at uh, Walt Disney World. So that was one of the key attractions that was going to be rebuilt, essentially the same, at Walt Disney World. Now, it does have some subtle changes um, at Walt Disney World, very subtle. Um, for the most part, it's the same attraction. I think it's a couple of things that, um, that, uh, that happen in the attraction that, make it, that run it just a little bit differently, so, that, so the cycle is a little different. But essentially, it's the same attraction. Then, uh, for each of the Disney parks that's opened since then, each of them has gotten a, an addition of the It's a Small World attraction. They each have one. And it's essentially, again, the same attraction at every one of the parks. And that's a remarkable thing. They didn't make many changes to it, and each one of them has this iconic attraction that's the same attraction. And it really is pretty neat, because you don't see that happen often. There was a period of time in the 70s when Disney kind of repeated some of its uh, things, and you would see them pop up in different parks, more or less the same. But this is the one that is exactly the same, or ostensibly the same, in every one of the parks. You go into it, it's very familiar, the scenes look familiar, the sets look familiar, the dolls are exceptionally familiar, and it's the same attraction. The song is the same. Everything about it is the same, and that's the remarkable thing, is that here it is 50 years later, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows this song, that, uh, that it's the same, the same song. Now, they've created new facades and done some new things and uh, you know, added some things that look very similar to the original uh, design art and design work to each of the uh, Disney parks around the world, so they all kind of have pieces that look very similar to the original. Um, but overall, it's the same It's the same attraction. Uh, they've improved the sound system, maybe some of the lighting, maybe upgraded a few dolls here and there, but it's really been running for the same, uh, running ever since at every one of the Disney parks. And that, to me, is a true testament to how, uh, how amazing this attraction was, and is, um, for what it's been able to do and the fact that it's, that it's still there in every one of the parks. And that's never, clo- never considered for closure. That's one attraction that you never hear about going, oh, we should close that attraction or we should completely overhaul it or refurbish it. It just doesn't work that way. Now, at Disneyland, they did some research, and this was kind of interesting. And uh, 25% of the guests that come in, about one in four guests that come into the park, have a tradition 
um, of riding the It's a Small World attraction. And that tradition varies from, you know, person to person, but there's a tradition of riding the, the attraction with your family. And it still goes on today. It's remarkable to me. Um, you know, and they, they plan a visit to the Small World attraction intentionally just to be, up, be able to go on it. It's estimated that a more hundred... Uh, it's estimated that more than 256 million guests have experienced It's a Small World uh, at Disneyland since it opened in 1966. So if that gives you a sense of how many people have ridden it there, just imagine the you know hundreds of millions, maybe even a billion people around the world who have ridden all of, have ridden it uh, in, in its entirety from the World's Fair all the way up until uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. Something you may not know that a stylized sun or moon appears in each one of the regions that you pass through. So as you're looking through it, take a look around. There'll be either a sun or a moon because there is just one moon and one golden sun. And as you look through it, uh, as you look through each one of the lens, you'll see that sun and moon if you look around. There is one other little piece to the historical nature of this that's worth mentioning. When It's a Small World moved to Disneyland from the uh, New York World's Fair, the Disney company decided to create something called Operation Water that was really a way for the world to come together and it's a small world. They brought in um, 16 different ethnic groups to pour flasks of water from the seven uh, seven seas and nine major lagoons into the waterway of the attraction. So they actually flew in water from different places and actually poured that into the water that was already running in the attraction to kind of meld it all together. It was a big publicity thing, of course, but it was an interesting way to kind of bring together the idea of all of these different countries coming together in It's a Small World. The New York Exposition of 1964 is the greatest World's Fair of all time. Our exhibit called It's a Small World is a salute to the United Nations Children's Fund, a worldwide organization that is working for a better tomorrow by helping the children of today. When the current World's Fair ends, It's a Small World will find a permanent home at Disneyland USA. So there you go. That's the story of It's a Small World After All. And it's one of those things that I just think is remarkable. I mean, Walt touched it, so that makes it kind of special in its own way. I like to, you know, kind of look back. Some of the things that Disney does now are very good. I don't mean to, you know, say anything bad about them. But the fact that Walt Disney actually touched this attraction makes it even that much more special. There's just a few of those left. And I think that really makes it kind of interesting and special and unique. And... The next time you're at Disney World or at Disneyland or any, so the next time you're at any one of the Disney parks, take a ride on it and just take a refreshing journey back and think about what this really meant. It's bringing children of the world together. And that song, you will not be able to get out of your head, especially since I'm going to play it for you at the end of the podcast. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this look back at the uh, attraction. It's a small world and kind of how it got to where it is. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. The show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. 
there were a couple of Disney-related apps, including a hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app. Thank you.